Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, we're talking books, everything we're reading this summer, or at least a few favorites, things we're taking to the beach, things we're using to dive deeper and think harder about ourselves, and books that are holding up a mirror to our experiences. We talked to Glynis McNichol, Yersa Daly-Ward, and Jessica Knoll. First up, Mina chatted with Jessica Newell about her new novel, The Favorite Sister. It is what People Magazine calls a juicy whodunit staged behind the scenes of a reality show. My name is Jessica Knoll, and I'm an author and also a screenwriter is um, a new a new kind of dimension to my career that's developed from my first book. Um, I'm so happy to hear you say that because I just read both of your books and I just kept screaming, where is the movie? So <laughs> I heard that the first we one has been... We can scream it together. Okay. <laughs> where is the movie? Where is the movie? Um, okay. Where are the movies? I love how this book talk to movie talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The move. So it, there's actually things going on with both books. So the first book, Luckiest Girl Alive, came out in 2015, and it was optioned by Lionsgate with Reese Witherspoon and Bruna Papandrea producing. And that's been three years now. And I adapted it myself. That's and awesome. It felt like you were like continuing the story in a way because the screen adaptation is like another deeper dive into the character and the story. But so we had that approved. The script was approved by the studio. And since then, it's just been a struggle of finding a director. And we are actually close with someone right now. I can't fingers really like crossed. Give a Don't ton- say it. We're not going to jinx yeah, it. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. Um, I'm so excited that you're making the time for us today. So the joke on Call Your Girlfriend is that I don't read fiction, but I can say in 2018 that that's no longer true. I want to talk about both of your books. So in your like famous New York Times essay uh, called I Want to Be Rich and I'm Not Sorry, I can't tell you how many people sent it to me being like, Amina, did you write for the Times this weekend? And I was like, well, you know, I wish that I was a novelist in Los Angeles. But yes, this person like really gets me. Um, one of the things that I loved about it is just this, uh, that you have been like quite sure of what you wanted to do for a long time. Yeah, I have been. People ask, you know, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? And I can't give them an answer because it feels, it to me, it's something I knew that I wanted to do the way I know how to breathe. I had teachers and parents that encouraged that in me and recognized a raw talent um, and pushed me in that direction. But like the piece that was always missing was how do you actually make a living out of this? And that was something I had to figure out on my own. I didn't really get a whole lot of direction when it came to how are you going to use this skill and this talent to pay your bills and to also live 
a life that like I want to live, you know, like I want to be able to travel and, and not have to worry about money. And, and, you know, you, when you hear someone as a writer, the kind of first thing that people would jump to is that you're living that kind of starving artist lifestyle. And I always knew that that wouldn't be for, for me. That's so refreshing to hear. Like, thank you for saying that. I think that Um, so many people think that like, yeah, in order to be an artist, you don't have to talk about money. And, uh, I'm going to be really honest. My entree into your work was actually that New York times essay. And I was like, I don't care what this lady writes. I'm going to support her because (laughs) so like, we're all very lucky that you're the most like talented person in the world because this could have backfired so many ways. Oh, I just thought (laughs) it was really honest and it was something, I don't know that I think a lot of our listeners also might recognize themselves in and I think that instinct too that you talked about you know like trying to adapt your work and you know or like figuring out foreign rights or whatever and knowing that you could be in control and you could learn a new skill and you could do something for yourself I think um that was something that was like deeply admirable uh, like admirable for me I was like yes like this is the kind of like can do spirit I like <laughs> ladies thank you yeah it was it really was about that like learning that new skill and it feels like each time I learn a new one another door opens like I know how to be a screenwriter now so now I have a little bit of um, power to say well I want to produce the next one and I get to do that yeah. now so it's exciting you know when you step up to that challenge and you do a good job at it the other doors that open from there that's cool well let's talk about the favorite sister this one but this one really had it all for me i was just like well you know like sibling rivalry murder plot twist reality tv like this is you know like Mm -hmm. deeply speaking to my soul Um, so (laughs) there was just there, I just really appreciated like reading, you know, like a complicated story that didn't feel, um, it didn't feel like the characters were caricatures, you know, even though like it was snarky and it was scandalous. I just like, I just think that for anybody who loves real housewives, like this is the smart book you've been looking to read for a long time. Oh, thank you for saying that. Because I'm a huge, well, I'm a huge Housewives fan. And I think when I sat down to write the second book, I used up so much of my own life in the first book that I was like, what am I going to draw (laughs) from now? And I'm just sitting there watching Real Housewives. And I think like one, one night I was at a friend's house and um, we decided to go back and watch the first season of Real Housewives of New York. And I was like, God, the Jill and Bethany friendship is so heartbreaking. Like there's so much to unpack here. And I think from there it just clicked. Like I could really borrow from like some of these storylines. And Andy Cohen, Andy Cohen actually called me and said he loved the book. And he was like, well, you just got to write what you know. And I was like, that's exactly <laughs> what I did. I know Bravo shows really well. So I wrote what I knew. <laughs> I love that. What is your process like when you're going through writing about, you know, these like complicated kind of women or and especially like millennial women? Because I do think that mm-hmm. there it's such a fine line between like you know, just like making them caricatures of the time and then just like very honestly saying like, this is the kind of book that like a progressive feminist can like be really really delighted in. Yeah, I think it's about, well, so I'm a millennial, but I'm an old millennial. So I'm part of this generation that we're, we're kind of painted as entitled and at the same time, some of us are really starting to grow up and like have real responsibilities in our lives. And that 
includes becoming mothers and um, getting married. And I'm that's not a part, that's not in my life right now. I'm not a mother, but so many of my friends are. And I really wanted to dig into that dynamic between like older millennial women who are mothers and older millennial women who are not mothers. So I wanted to represent kind of my people, yeah. <laughs> which are like the older millennial women who aren't mothers and how we- uh, As I call us, no kids, no problems. <laughs> no kids, no problems. That's, yeah, except that's me. For except that it's dogs not that true. Itch their vaginas on your car. <laughs> that's the only problem I have right now with my dog. Uh, uh, yeah. So I I was trying to to also broaden in my first book. I wrote so much about my world and the world I knew, and I wanted to open up and really challenge myself in this book and put myself in the shoes of women who have had different experiences than me and imagine like what they're feeling and, you know, what their grievances are and what their joys are in life. So it was a lot of shuffling between the kind of like three main characters who we hear um, from their point of view in The Favorite Sister. And it, it could be hard to like move from one person to another because you really do start to like fall in love with each person. Um, and you're like, oh, no. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, no, I have to like shift to this other person who's kind of like her mortal enemy um, and get into her head. Just like so Real Housewives. There was a lot of, just like Real Housewives. It was like constant shifting of alliances. Well, the main friendship is obviously modeled between Bethany and it's like the friendship between Bethany and Jill. Correct. Correct. Yes. And the thing that I like love about it is how you really get into the nitty gritty of the obsession that friends can have for each other. Mm-hmm. That just like you have to know everything. You have to be there for every experience. It's like you are their soulmate. One of the things that we talk about a lot here is just how, you know, like friendship is one of the central relationships that a lot of young women have because it's not sanctioned by paperwork. It doesn't feel like the main course a lot of times, but you Mm -hmm. get to explore the underbelly of that where it is like the obsession becomes so much. And because you have so many boundaries that aren't spoken of that you end up just destroying each other. Yeah, it's almost like the love becomes so powerful that it tips the scales and it goes into that realm of like, I know so much about you that I hate you now. (laughs) I mean, I just think I've had in my life when I think about the friendships I've had in my life, like the way women have hurt me in my life, it's just like no man could ever, you know, metaphorically hit me that hard, you know? Like it was always such a gut punch when – you know, when a friendship started to sour. And I've spent a lot of time with just women in my life. I went to an all-girls school from kindergarten to eighth grade. I worked in magazines, so I was only ever around women and like one gay man. Like that was my office for about eight years. And so I feel like I have a lot to say about those dynamics. They can be powerful for good when they're working, but that power can can corrupt and go bad. I've seen that happen too. I've had it happen to me and I hope that I haven't done that to other people, but you never know. I don't know what women I've worked with or women I've gone to school with, you know, I don't know what their memories are of me. I can't imagine that I was only 
only ever the victim in these situations. Oh, I think about so. this constantly. Like, constantly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that because we don't, you know, like, in the way that in a romantic relationship, if you're lucky, you can have some sort of, like, postmortem or you can have, you can really have closure. I don't know that we have mm-hmm. language to do that for friendships a lot of time. Right. It feels like it's not sanctioned necessarily to have those sorts of conversations after a friendship is over. And like a lot of my friendships that ended badly when I was much younger in middle school, I've slowly reconnected with those people over the years. Just, But on social media, like it hasn't really... We haven't taken it offline yet, but I have gotten a sort of... Not that they've repented, but I I have had those moments, a little bit of closure from friends who have said, you know, I read this in the book and it, it recalled, you know, a moment that we had when we were younger and, you know, our friendship did mean so much to us. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry it ended the way it ended, you know, and you realize that like other people, you weren't the only one who got hurt. Other people got hurt too. Man, you're making me want to not look at Facebook today because I don't think I, don't think oh, I can God. handle real I, talk from like middle school friends. From middle school friendships, I know. And it's like who even, all you're left with is like the emotional feeling I of it. Know, you, know, right? you, you don't even, even remember what it was, anymore. but like the feeling is so right. sharp. Um, one, of the other, it, yeah. one of the other things I think that you do so well in this book is really lay bare the like the behind the scenes of reality TV for people who, you know, mm-hmm. it's like for those of us who like watch a lot or we watch Unreal or whatever, we're really aware of what the manipulation is like, you know, but I think that you really drove that point home that nothing is like nobody really is who they claim they are and everybody is posturing right. for the cameras. Right. Yes. And I, you know, when I was writing the book, it was before the election, before the presidential election. And it's amazing to me how prescient it feels reading it now because we're living in this kind of post-truth world, right? Where like facts don't matter. Like we can shape reality however we want to shape it. And that's the world these women are very much living in is like, it's, it's the kind of emotional truth of things versus the factual truth. I was also fascinated with this idea of being able to like lay blame at the foot of a person that it works better for your narrative. You know, you have to read the book to know, but like kind of the wrong person takes the fall um, for this crime because it better fits the narrative that the show is pushing. Okay, well, I won't ruin the rest of the book for anybody, but there is murder, (laughs) there is sibling rivalry. I don't even (laughs) want to touch on it because I don't want to give anything away. But if that's your jam, kind of like great junk food, you know, like in the sense, like some people will say that it's not good for you. (laughs) I dispute that. Everything is good for you in moderation. This is super addictive. Right. Well, I hate... Yeah, I hate when people say like anything about reality TV being a guilty pleasure because I'm like, why? We shouldn't experience guilt, you know, for the things that give us pleasure. Yeah, I'm like, just enjoy it. This is my classics. This is the Odyssey for me. Okay, like just just deal with it. We're gonna put that on the cover. That's a great blurb right there. You're like, you're like, come on a journey through classics reality <laughs> TV with Jessica Noel. 
<laughs> it's so it's so true though you know i think that so many people have shame about their interests especially women because you know like the oh, everything yes. that young women care about is really frivolous and i was like I don't, i'm like i don't know how to tell you this if you watch sports you already know the dynamics of reality tv it's all the same right everything is reality tv down to politics so you might as well bow to the masters <laughs> of it i'm like some people right. actually get paid to make this and other people are forced to live this so who are you going to trust yeah and like i'll also add to that that you know reality tv is a world where like women thrive and whether you know you can have arguments whether that's for good or for bad but you know you don't really get to see women being like loud and like misbehave and be rewarded for that you know like there are very few realms where we get to see that take place so i don't know in some ways i think there are things worth celebrating there Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Jess. Thank you for having me. You can find Luckiest Girl Alive and The Favorite Sister wherever you buy your favorite books. Okay, so I am obsessed with Glynis McNichol's new memoir, No One Tells You This. So Glynis's memoir arrives at a time when there have been seemingly this new spate of books that are being frank about the experience of motherhood or deciding whether to become a mother. I'm thinking about Sheila Hetty's Motherhood. I'm thinking about And Now We Have Everything on Motherhood Before I Was Ready, Megan O'Connell's book. I'm thinking about Now My Heart is Full, a memoir by Laura June, also about motherhood. And so reading Glynis's book, which is about like, what does it take to build a life as a person who does not have kids and is not partnered and is like still totally engaged with the world and like engaged with her community and family? Like, what does that life look like? And this book is just such a beautiful exploration of that. So here's me and Glynis. Glynis, welcome to Call Your Girlfriend. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I have so many feelings about your memoir. I mean, all of them great. But first of all, I have to ask you how you knew that this was the subject for, uh, for a memoir. Or like, this is the part of your story that you knew you wanted to tell now. When I started, you know, I turned 40. I approached it with a lot of dread, unacknowledged dread, really, I, I think, in the sense of once I turned 40, what came next? There was the only sense was like, if you're single and you don't have children, that this was sort of the end. Like you're, you've missed the last exit to a fulfilling life. Good luck. Right. If you're, if you're a straight woman, people are like, you have, you have exhausted your options exactly. if you're not married and don't have kids. There, and there was nothing out there to suggest otherwise. My immediate feeling of work, waking up on my 40th birthday was one of like, just enormous relief. This sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm free now from all of these 
expectations and free of the clock that tends to tick in women's brains, you know, once we hit puberty. And then I spent the year being really increasingly frustrated and resentful that no one had actually prepared me for what life might be like, that it was complicated and difficult in ways no one had suggested to me, but also so exhilarating and wonderful. And I had so much freedom. And I just thought I, I was, I got angry and angrier that there were no stories to look to, to see my life and the life of so many women around me reflected back to me. I sort of compared it to how women have traditionally not been taught how to deal with their own money until very recently. And I really felt like I had not been taught how to deal with freedom to like the freedom to make all of my own decisions, which is both amazing and difficult, but no one had told me either of those things. And so I got to the end of my 40th year, spent that I spent a lot of time complaining that there was no stories. And then as a writer, eventually occurred to me, I should write the story. And it just so happened that my 40th year involved a lot of highs and lows that reflected, I think, a lot of, of challenges that single women face. I was a primary caretaker for my mother who was quite ill. And my sister was a single parent at the time with small children. And on the flip side, I, you know, had a modicum of financial stability and was traveling quite a bit and was just having this sort of in, incredibly exhilarating time. And and both those things were contra to uh, the ideas we have about single women, which is either they're objects of pity, which I was really not, as I was sort of sailing through France at one point, and or or very spoiled, which I was equally not spoiled. I had enormous responsibility. So I felt like the year encapsulated a lot of things I felt were lacking in the conversation and that I wanted to contribute to it and that I needed to see myself. So I figured, you know, probably other women did too, or I hoped anyway. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious about um, how you feel about the kind of broader atmosphere that this book comes out in. Um, <laughs> I mean, and, and I, I mean that in a couple of different ways, like politically, for sure. Like, maybe we can talk about that one first. Mm-hmm. But then I'm also, I'm also interested. I mean, one reason I just like your book was like oxygen to me is because it came out at the same time as all these very well publicized memoirs and books about motherhood. Mm-hmm. And I was like, totally feeling this overwhelm, um, almost retrograde. Like, you know, there's so many books about like, this very traditional take on womanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious. I'm, and then, and then, of course, like you, it's impossible to consider anything absent like this political moment. So maybe, maybe talk about those things. Like you know, I know books are written in different environments than in which they are birthed. Yes, it's in this case extremely different. When I sold this book, it was greeted with some skepticism, like, will anybody actually be interested in this? How is this a story? Is there anything compelling about this? And I think what we're seeing right now is across the board, women, people of color, minorities, anybody that doesn't fit the mainstream narrative of what life is supposed to look like are pushing back against the lack of narratives around all of our lives. One of the reasons we have the administration we have is that the dominant narrative of whiteness and maleness was really challenged during the Obama administration. We're seeing a pushback against this. So I think it's a little overwhelming to be publishing in this moment. We are, this is a very intense, intense 
moment in American history, I think it's fair to say. But I also feel really fortunate to be putting into the world in a moment of time when we're seeing so much direct and, and violent pushback against the right to story of anyone that's not a, a white man, essentially, that I'm able to put this out into the world and support it and, and have this platform. So I don't know, I'm up for the challenge. I guess it, feels, it does feel a little overwhelming. Part of writing this book was that I felt really suffocated by the really narrow, limited narratives provided for women in general and was trying to counter that using my own life experience with a, a slightly different story. If we are going to come out of this current moment as overwhelming and depressing as the news is, I do think we are going to come out of it. Then what's going to take us out of it is a wide variety of narratives being woven into the idea of what this country is in a, in a more permanent and, you know, celebrated way. Right. And it's okay to acknowledge, like, you know, on, on some people, these constraints are suffocating. On others, they are life-threatening mm-hmm. and desire all of these stories. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious about, you know, there's so much in this book about your mother, especially because she was sick during this period of your 40th year that the book is about. And this idea of like, what if your life is a rejection of your mother's or what, what, what if your life is a commentary on your mother's choices? And I think that that's something that like in, in this heteropatriarchy we dwell in, like a thing that women, women think about a lot. Like, like what are the choices that the women who came before me had? What am I doing with my different set of choices? Mm -hmm. How do I judge and feel about those women who came before me in my like family history or personal history. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that um, your book was one of the most interesting and artful grapplings with that question that I've read in a really long time. And so maybe yeah. you can talk a bit about that. Yeah. It, it, my mother was diagnosed with Parkinson's and dementia a few years before I turned 40 and was very, very ill during that year and, and passed away a few weeks after I turned the first draft of this book in. So it was very like forefront of my mind and really forced me to grapple with ways in which I had rejected her life or taken on certain things. Probably had I written this book at a different time, I might have been thinking about that less, but I was so confronted with it on a daily basis, especially because dementia, similar to Alzheimer's, if any of your listeners have dealt with it, you, like my mother was confused about what decade she was in. So sometimes she would talk like she was still in the 60s you know, in university and just dating my father. And sometimes she would talk. So it was like she was cycling through these decades and I was a strange sort of witness to her thinking as it was arising. And, you know, part of the frustration of this book was that I couldn't talk to her about it. Like I was I was thinking all these things and I didn't have someone to double check them against because of course mm. she wasn't there and she didn't remember. But from almost day one, I was fairly in rejection of how my mother operated in the world. <laughs> I just, I think I say this in the book, but I remember her telling me when I was very young, she, she was seeing a, a therapist and complaining about me. And the therapist was like, you have a very powerful child there, Mrs. McNichol. And I used to think that was such a great thing. But in hindsight, I realized like how overwhelming that must have been to her. She was a very kind and gentle person. And I was a very forceful person and just structured my life in a way that 
was so completely the opposite of her choices. And I don't know that I even articulated that to herself or me at the time. It was very instinctive. Like I saw the life I was being raised in and I just didn't want anything to do with it. My mother's generation, she's a little, she was a little bit older than Hillary Clinton, but the expectations placed on women who were born sort of baby boomer a little before changed significantly decade by decade. And I think as I've gotten older, I have increasing sympathy for what it must have been like for my mother to be a child and a teen in the 50s with all those expectations placed on her and then suddenly find herself in the 60s, not to mention the 70s with the women's liberation movement. Like it was just, it it was, I'm sure, overwhelming to have the definition of being a woman shift under your feet so significantly with each decade. As a grown-up, I'm far more understanding of the choices she made and how she lived than I definitely was as a teen or in my 20s and 30s, where it was just, get me away from this as quickly as possible. Like, yeah, I just, I'm just thinking, my poor mother, too. Like, I have, that's what I mean, my poor mother. She was always trying to get me to wear a slip or, like, dress nicely or say nice things. And I was like, I won't have anything to do with any of it. Okay, real talk, though, I love a slip. It keeps your butt from eating the dress that you're wearing. That's why I love a slip. Your butt can eat the slip instead. I know. The funny thing is, is that that's totally true. But um, I associated everything she tried to get me to do with a very conservative life in the suburbs. And I just rejected all of it, which could not have been very pleasant for her, although she's very understanding about it. I I know that this is not an advice book. This is a book about your own, um, you know, journey and experience. But especially because it does begin with you at this, like, it's not, I don't want to call it a crisis point or a low point, but the kind of like the the mixed feelings that you have on your 40th birthday, Mm -hmm. I guess maybe we can say that. Um, Do you, do you feel like you came to some general, like, here's how to work through the the feeling of not seeing your story reflected and and your path for the future not laid out by like culture and social narratives like did you did you sort of come to a point where you're like okay like maybe maybe this is this is a more this is this is a coping mechanism for mm-hmm. being written out of that narrative i think my coping mecha- mechanism was probably writing this book to be honest and i think about that a lot in terms of if you are not a writer, what is the coping mechanism? Because my response was literally like, I'm going to fill this void and demand to be recognized. Um, but I also think, and this is, you know, you hear this a lot, but experiencing it is really enjoyable. I stopped, <laughs> I stopped and my concern for other people's uh, opinions and thoughts has just almost disintegrated. Like I just, I, I am so disinterested in, I mean, give no fucks, I think is the, the, the phrase we like to put to that. I'm not invested <laughs> in that opinion at all anymore. It's been an amazing experience, but you know, I, I, I don't like advice books. I'm not somebody who has ever been attracted to them. And I think I really just wanted to say, this is my experience. It was almost like notes, like dispatches from the land of 40 that no one talks about. Like, I just wanted to report back and say, this has been my experience out here. I should tell you about it as opposed to... (laughs) Correspondent from this phase. Yeah, (laughs) Here's how you should approach it. I don't actually... I just hope women approach it with 
I just wanted to diminish the shame that seems to come around age for women. And the older I get and the more we talk about Me Too and this real, even I find myself overwhelmed by the awareness of what we've accepted in terms of magazine covers and imagery and this deep-seated assumption that as you age, your worth diminishes and, and what that is rooted in. And I really just wanted to be like, I feel great. You know, I mean, I have shit days like everyone else. The world is not particularly wonderful because um, I was seeing that in so many women I knew too. And I just thought, man, is this a secret? Like, there's some, <laughs> like did I, was I not aware? And just sort of like declare it less than, you know, here's how you should do it. If there's one piece of advice I would hope to come out of this book is that I do believe every American should drive across this country, if you can. It is a very... I've driven across it for many years. Um, and you really, if you have any awareness of all of your surroundings, you become immediately aware of how differently people are treated on the road. And we're seeing evidence of that in the news stories right now. But yes, Sandra Bland left to drive across the country only a few days before I did. And so her her story was on the news as we were driving. And I was just so incredibly aware of the divide between her experience on the road and my experience on the road. That to me is such an example of privilege, just the privilege of movement, you know, that the ability of me to move around the country is, is, is new too. You know, women traditionally have not been encouraged to drive across the country. I think the iPhone has really shifted that for a lot of women, but like just the difference of my experience literally on the same roads is a, is a real good measure of the privilege with which I operate in the world. But I also, as the conversation around privilege, I, I hope never shuts people up from talking about their own stories. It's just bring an awareness to how you tell your story, ideally, not that you shouldn't be telling it. And also, who isn't being able to tell a story is the other, the flip side of that. Okay, well, I'm going to live my dream in my head that this is the first of like a kind of like, a, you know how like a, those like old YA series used to be <laughs> with like a border and like like the the women's experiences um, beyond 40 series. Like, my, I'm like, yes, give me all of them, all of the different experiences. Oh my God, that would be amazing. I want to hear all of them. I wrote this one, but I'm still desperate to read other ones. It's not like there's like a plethora of them out there. I'm dying to hear more stories because it's not like I solved my own life. Like life is still, there's still challenges. There's still, it is still difficult. I talk a lot about living without a blueprint in this book. It is still very difficult to not sort of have the traditional blueprint and, and be modeling it as you go. And I'm dying to hear other people's versions of this and the challenges and joys and and yeah, we should start that series. That's a great idea. The Blueprint series. The Blueprint series. Oh. I want it to happen so bad. Oh my God. Okay, Glennis, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the podcast. Can't wait to see, uh, like, hear this book, hear about this book out in the world and hear about people's reactions to it. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled that we got to talk. Find No One Tells You This, a memoir on bookshelves starting July 10th. You can also, if you're in New York, catch her in conversation with Amina at The Strand on July 10th. And if you're in Los Angeles, she'll be chatting with me at Skylight Books, one of my favorite places, on July 15th.
I discovered Irsa Daly Ward's poetry on Instagram, which I think is true of a lot of her fans. And I loved her poetry collection, Bone, um, which is drawn from some work that she had already published on the internet and some new poems. Her latest book is a poetic memoir called The Terrible, which I, I don't know. I don't know that poetic memoir is a term, but definitely it reads in this kind of lyrical way that puts it in my mind somewhere between the realms of like poetry and prose. Anyway, it's about her childhood in the north of England, about her difficult relationship with her mother and with her grandparents, about discovering the power and fear of sexuality, um, especially when you are queer and like just starting to realize it, about losing yourself in pills and sex and partying and ultimately finding yourself and finding your voice. Here's Irsa. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You're so welcome. It's a pleasure. I, um, I just read The Terrible in a single sitting oh, because wow. I couldn't put it down. Oh. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about how this book began because I also was a big fan of Bone and I maybe I expected another book of poetry or something. Um, I did not expect this. Well, I didn't expect it either, actually. Uh, that's the thing about making anything or or doing anything organic uh, with your art form. You don't know what you don't know what form it's going to take. And I certainly didn't. I uh, I was asked if I had anything like bone at, at the time. I, I had nothing. Well, not like bone actually. If I had anything else, and I said, yeah, of course. But I didn't. I didn't have anything. Uh, I just, you know, I just <laughs> said I did. And then I was asked for it, and so I had to produce something. And I I, I thought it would be. I thought I would actually write a, a fiction um, novel next. I didn't know it would be that, but I think. When you have a story to tell, it gets in the way of everything else. And so that's what happened. It just came out. And I thought at some point, it looks like I'm writing a memoir. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you someone who keeps a journal? Did you have something like that that you relied on? Or did it truly just come from within and from memory? No, it truly came from memory. I used to have a journal when I was really, really, really young, maybe about eight to 10. And then again, 15 to, to 16. And actually, I came upon that when I'd already submitted the book. It's, it's, it, my memory was actually spot on. But then it would be because, because you know, those things happened in my life. I, I always do wonder about that, though, where artists have this ability to not just remember, you know, the facts of what happened. But I mean, everything you're writing is so emotionally in all of these moments from your youth. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, did it feel like revisiting some sort of other version of yourself it's or previous self? It's definitely <laughs> another version. It's definitely not you now because you have so much that you didn't have and then you have so so much less than you had. Uh, so it's, it, it, it's, it's definitely you. It's a bit like, I guess, like watching the film that you, that you are very familiar with you are different, you are changed because you, you are older and we're changing in every passing minute. But you're still unmistakably what you were and those memories are, are still yours. And so it, it's, it is a revisiting of, of sorts, but it's, it's, it's with a different perspective. It's with a definitely more of an observer, definitely more objective. And, and your emotions are different about, about certain things. Can you think of something in the book that uh, you did notice how your emotions had evolved about it 
you know, in the at the moment of writing it versus recalling what it felt like at the time? Well, a lot of the book, I mean, it feels like hindsight. You know, so many ideas of beauty that I thought were were real and were, you know, unmistakable facts were not facts. Um, maybe the way I felt about the people around me and, and, and the things that w were happening. You know, when you're a child, you tend to think in very black and white about what is fair, what is not fair, <laughs> who is good, who is evil. But of course, as you get older, you realize that, you know, there's just so much spectrum and, and light and shade in everything and everybody. And so I approach it. And, and, and why I think that it's it was a joy to write and not difficult to write is because I don't, you know, hold on to any feelings of resentment or or trauma or anything that's just negative because there's no point because I'm not the same. And that was then. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and also, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an adult now, so I, I'm looking at what adults did in the book and, and understanding it anew. Absolutely. I'm, I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about the title and what The Terrible is. The Terrible was like, like a tongue-in-cheek kind of, you know, the terrible, dramatic uh, title. But it, it was the name I gave to, to the thing that, that, that follows you around if you don't deal with it. And, you know, we all have a version of The Terrible. So it can be uh, grief, addiction, loneliness, despair, depression. It can be an eating disorder. You know, it can be dysmorphia. It can be whatever, um, whatever it is for you, the, the sticky thing for you. Sometimes it's a mixture of, of two things. Sometimes it's a monster. Sometimes it looks like you. So the terrible is just the name, the, yeah, personification of all of those things. And what is, what is your particular terrible? Or maybe you could talk a bit about that for people who haven't read the book. Well, we'd be here all night, but I mean, there are, <laughs> there, there are the, I mean, the book covers so much. I, like many other people growing up, you know, went, went through a lot of different, you know, terribles. In fact, they all meld up to make, to make one. But, you know, the, 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 the struggles with um, identity, depression, not understanding who I was in the world, lots of things. But it covers so much things. It covers sexuality. It covers uh, substance abuse and not understanding like like how how to control um, one's emotions and, and, and process it in a an honest way. And I think that's why that's why it built up because it was so many different things. Right. One of the one of the many things that I think kind of at least at some point for you fell into this bucket is. Um, you describe this term, maybe I'm getting it wrong, the power fear or the fear power from, from your adolescence. Yeah. <laughs> when, you know, just that moment of nascent sexuality and like of being sexualized. And I'm wondering about if you could talk a bit about how you put a name to that feeling, because that was one of those one word things in this book that really just stopped me and, and took me, me back to that moment in my own life. And I think most many, many women listening to this will probably also identify with that. Well, the power fear is almost, oh, it's almost an oxymoron, not quite, but it's, it's that moment when as a, a young woman, as, as, well, as a child, let's, let's be honest, as a child growing into a young woman, you hit that moment where suddenly you, your body becomes different and it's viewed differently. And the idea of 
of the the so-called, and this is an in inverted commas, the so-called power that you wield from all from, mm. from from all of this, and and all of a sudden people are looking at you differently and expect different things from you and desire different things from you, which can feel very powerful, can feel very powerful, but is actually frightening because you're not old enough, you don't know what to do with it. You know, it's been it's being seen and viewed in a, in, in a very in, in a very strange way all of a sudden. So that's why I called it the power fear, because it hangs in the balance between what you can do with it and what, or also what can be done to you. Oh, I love that. I mean, I'm wondering about um, the authors who you read who uh, maybe shaped the way you work with words or the way you feel about words, both, um, both as a teenager in the power fear years <laughs> um, and, and now inspiration is the wrong word mm. but like you know who who are you in conversation with and who is um who's changing your feelings about your own work well i think the 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 biggest thing that other writers have done for me is kind of let me know that it's all right to to write about the things that i wanted to write about because if i'd never read alice walker the color purple and by the light of my father's smile or tony morrison's the bluest eye or Jeanette Winterson's oranges are not the only fruit. I wouldn't know that my specific stories are okay to 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 be told to go out there because you know so much of what I I grew up reading was very it's just you know this this we have this homogenous like reading list and uh, it was interesting you know they're books so I've always been interested in books wildly but it was a single story and so the moment I started um, reading. Uh, women writers, uh, women writers of color. And, and they were talking about sexuality in this really, in this very sensual and detailed way. And, and talking about religion and the black family and ideas of uh, attractiveness and beauty in a way that just de deconstructed it. And I was completely, completely enthralled with that and still am. And I go back to those writers all the time for the same reasons. Right, it's almost um, like a giving permission. <laughs> yeah, and, and you, permission is what you feel like you need when you're you know, 13 and 14 and you know you, know you love li literature and you know you love to write, but you don't know whether what you have to say is valid. Well, and now you're someone who, um, at least I feel, gives a lot of permission to others. And I find myself wondering, you know, with a lot of the subjects you deal with so openly in your memoir and in your poetry, you must get so many messages from people who are in, in deep with their own terribles. And I'm wondering what you tell them and if that's overwhelming and how do you deal with that? Well, it's, you know, there's not a set uh, response or, or, or indeed feeling because they're, they're all different. I, I will say that it's, it's lovely to know that something you write can be can help somebody else. And that really did a lot to change how I felt about what I was doing and, and why I was doing it. Because there's got to be a point to it. It's it's lovely to write a book and to have it out there, but there's got to be, you know, something that you are doing to make things better, you know, in the world. And I hope that the writing is doing that. Uh, you said um, earlier when talking about how this book sort of came as a result of a prompt, like what else is there? Are you 
do you think now differently about how you ask that question of yourself? And, um, you know, and you said it was kind of a natural extension of like a creative practice. And I'm wondering if you could talk about where your practice is now and the kinds of the things that are exciting you. I get excited by, by non-structure. I get excited by, by feeling something or, or meeting people that, are, or that, that make me have new feelings uh, and reading new things and reading everything. So it can be, you know, a book on sp spirituality. It can be, you know, a book on, um, I would say like a, like a physics book. It could be an art book. All of that's going to give me uh, fodder, even if I don't realize that that's happening. And and the world around me. And as as far as practice, it's uh, it's an early morning thing. You know, my my days are full. So by the by the middle of the day, I don't feel like writing anything down. Like so much <laughs> has happened. Uh, so, but yeah, I'm, I'm at my my best in the early in, in in the early morning, and that you know the fives and sixes and sevens, when when everything else is quiet, and and you're new because you've just woken up. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, this is not like four, five, six from staying up all night. No, it's like getting up in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> this is like the part in the book where you say it takes six moments to right. write a thing. <laughs> Maybe you could talk a bit about that. Well, sometimes there's this moment when I sit down and write. I think, oh my god, is that is that going to be it? Is there not, is anything left? You know, <laughs> Maybe nothing will come. And of course, that's just not true. There's, there's always going to be stuff. Uh, but it's it's just a funny little like. I guess slight paranoia that you've you've talked about all the things you want to talk about, but as you're growing and experiencing every day, that's impossible. That's impossible because we're not the same one one moment to the next, are we? Right. So better always be documenting, huh? <laughs> I, I feel like uh, this is another thing. I feel like you don't need to. I feel like you can trust that it will be there when you when you come down. Because people say, oh, you know, you're going to lose it. Write it down right now. But you know, your body stores things. You know, things are in memory and memory isn't just memory is everywhere. And I, I do think we can rely on ourselves to to remember things just as you remember the words to a song that you haven't sang for 10 years. You, you can remember um, experiences, you can bring them up, which is why we can write memoirs without the aid of, of, of diary, you know, or, or, or anything that, that was written down at the time. I think it's all still, it's all stored somewhere. Right. And I think that's especially true for the things that you felt deeply. I mean, I don't remember every song from 10 <laughs> years ago, but I do remember the ones, you know, that I really felt. And it's probably the same, the same with experiences. Well, yeah, I think I gave you an unfair one then because I don't know what it is, but I've got a I don't know what it is. I've got a crazy memory for songs. So I, I've, <laughs> if one starts a song that I, I, I haven't heard for ages, I can just remember the lyrics and I don't, I don't understand what that is or how best to use it yet. Certainly, yeah, with, with, as you said, with things that, that, that you remember how something felt in your body or you remember, you know, the look on somebody's face. Those are things that don't go away. You've written, when you talk about yourself, watch your language. Yes. And I'm wondering if you apply that to your writing as well and how that kind of gentleness with yourself extends to writing about yourself. Well, the way I, I've, I put it, and God, I mean, I don't even know if I practice what I'm about to preach. Um, but, I, <laughs> I, you know, there's only one of me and there's only one of you. So I always, I, I try to be really gentle with myself and, and just not... 
not judge myself or, or chastise myself for anything that I'm about to do, anything that I have done. You know, I can say, I can certainly say, oh, that wasn't a great decision. But but the way I treat myself is the way I treat others and, and vice versa. So, you know, you, you've got to have understanding and, and, and grace. And how am I going to have understanding and grace if I, if it doesn't start with me? So, yeah, I, I, I've got plenty of that. And that certainly seems to come through. I mean, I thought one of the most transcendent sections in this book is when you write about all the things that the terrible has given yeah. you yeah. <laughs> um, near the very end. And maybe you could talk about that a bit, the kind of, I don't want to say the upsides or the silver linings, but the way that it's impossible to separate all of the terrible things in your history from the person you've become. It is so impossible to separate it because without them, of course, you don't have you, you know, you don't have tenacity, you don't, you know, certain levels of adversity bring so much, they bring so much light. And and that moment in The Terrible that you're referring to is when, you know, the terrible, we kind of come face to face, you know, um, you know, nose to nose. And 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 the terrible says, well, well, don't you know? Without me, you wouldn't have this, that, and the other. Without me, you know, you'd be boring. You you wouldn't have experienced this. Don't you know? I kept you safe. Don't you know that during all of that, you're still here? You know, don't you know that there'd be no glittering story? There'd be no uh, fantastic timeline. There'd be nothing, nothing to speak of. You wouldn't have anything to give. And I absolutely, I didn't even realize this until I was writing the passage at six o'clock in the morning or whenever I was writing it. And uh, and, and then I thought, oh, wow, yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's been a reason for every single terrible thing that has happened. And I'm only just starting to understand that now. I'm starting to understand it thanks to this book. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank Here's you. A, Best of, best of luck with the tour. I hope, I hope so many people buy and read this Thank book. Thank you so, so much. It was a pleasure. Look for Irsa Daily Ward's The Terrible, a storyteller's memoir at your favorite indie bookseller. And we want to hear about what you all are taking to the beach, taking to the pool, taking on vacation, and reading this summer. You can use the hashtag CYGbooks to share what you are reading and what you are up to. And we will continue to use it to share the rest of our picks with you too because... Prime summer activity in this family is reading. See you on the internet and in your local indie bookstore and in the library. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or on Apple Podcasts where we'd love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, The Bleed, on the Call Your Girlfriend website. Uh, You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. All original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kenesha Sneed. And this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.